guys. Welcome back to the Jen Hatmaker Book Club Podcast. And if you're listening to this on our regular For the Love podcast feed, welcome. So this is a sneak peek for you into all the incredible fun that we have behind the scenes at the Jen Hatmaker Book Club, which we would love to have you join. You can get all the information at jenhatmakerbookclub.com. We have a seat for you. All right, book clubbers. Woo! Excited today to bring you another author chat with the one and the only Sue Monk Kid. I've seen you guys all absolutely thrilled to chat about this book in our Facebook group. <laughs> You've been um, talking up a storm around this one for obvious reasons. I'm just as excited as you. So let's just dive in here because we have so much to discuss. You're going to love this interview with Sue. I asked her a bunch of your questions, which you had some really good questions. She gave you guys like an A plus on your good, smart questions. So just know that that's coming. All right. So Sue Monk Kid, you probably know, she was born and raised in Sylvester, Georgia, a location that unsurprisingly, as they all do, deeply impacted her writing and point of view. Sue graduated from Texas Christian University and has since attended, I can't even count how many writing conferences and seminars. Most of you probably know her from her first novel published in 2002, The Secret Life of Bees. It was just like an absolute smash hit. I mean, it spent over two years on the New York Times bestseller list. It has been translated into 36 languages and has sold over eight million copies. <laughs> it's been adapted into plays, a feature film, a Broadway show. So, I mean, it did okay, is what I'm saying. Sue has been nominated for and won several awards, including the Impact Dublin Literary Award, the 2005 Quill Award for general fiction. It just goes on and on. She's just a freaking national treasure. One of the best authors of our time, you guys. So, and of course, our book selection for this month, The Book of Longings, which is just, whoop, it is juicy. There is so much in here to learn from, to discuss, to noodle, to consider, obviously to have incredible conversation around, which we have in our, in our group this, this month. And so I ask her everything. She answers everything. She is delightful. She is amazing. We're really, really lucky. You guys, we're so lucky. This is the caliber of author that we get to have and that we get to talk to. And she answers our personal questions. Like I am so in love with book club and I am so in love with Suma kid, you are going to love this one. You guys stick your earbuds in, go take a walk. Cause this is a fantastic conversation. Welcome Sue. As you know, Sue, it's some of the most robust conversation we've had around one of our selections yet, which what else can we ask for out of a book club book? Right. That's it. Get them talking. That's good. Let's get them thinking. Let's get them talking. And just a wildly popular book in the club. I'm delighted to have conversation with you around Book of Longings, but specifically and particularly for book club, because now we're dealing with a group of committed thousands of readers who are reading this and have read it and have some really great questions for you today, which I'll get to, but just right out of the gate. Thanks again for making time for my community. You are deeply beloved in my community. So this is very special for all of us. That's so nice of you to say. Okay. I just want to dig in here with you because again, this is, you're now speaking to a group of people who are in it. They're, they've either finished it or they're in the middle of it. And so these are, this is an insider crew here around the book of longings. I think the first thing I want to talk to you about is the title, 
Let's start. Let's start with the start. If I could just wrench my mind and try to think of a better title, and I can't. You, you've you found it. You found the thing, because obviously the story is so focused on the desires and longings of Anna. So, can you talk about what it was like to visualize such a progressive character, and then place her in such a patriarchal ancient setting? Where the title came from, did you know it going in or did you find it when you wrote a sentence? Well, Anna, let's talk about Anna a minute. You call her progressive. Yes, she was way ahead of her time in many, many ways. And yet in some ways, I feel like what she was about was timeless, you know, Mm -hmm. that it kind of dwells deep down in women's hearts Mm -hmm. for eons. It just wasn't recognized. It's Mm -hmm. enculturated in us not to be there. I mean, I thought about that because mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of things on um, that readers have said. Some of them were, well, they didn't have feminists back then. She mm-hmm. wouldn't have been like that. Mm-hmm. You know, they w- women were different then. And I thought, well, no, there wasn't a feminism. There wasn't an organized anything for women. Yeah they were pretty enculturated and some of them never thought about it. But I believe in the core of my being that there were women who, who longed for more, Mm -hmm. who wanted, who saw their brothers with all these opportunities and their fathers and saw what their mothers were about and Mm -hmm. wanted the same kind of freedoms and opportunities and understood their cages. And I had a guy Mm -hmm. ask me that in an interview this kind of question and, you know, implying that maybe women weren't like that. And Mm -hmm. I said, look, I know women's hearts. Do you know women's hearts? I know women's hearts. And I know that women long for that. So I think Mm -hmm. that they were progressive. Yes. At the time, but what if being progressive is just really an innate need longing potential in us Mm that wants to come to fruition, that wants to be actualized, you know? It's human, right? Yeah, it's human. It's not about gender. It's about humanity. And um, women feel that oppression, I think, deeply. And Anna did. Anna was one of those women with her eyes wide open and her heart on fire. She had a wild mind and a fiery heart. Yes, I love her. And she, so I think, she longed for many things we could talk about later, but the title came from that. It came yeah. from this innate thing in women, this longing for more to be out of the cage, to, yeah. to have the freedom, the possibility, and to be supported in it, to become your largest self, to become what you're intended to be. Yeah. Yeah, I love how you don't necessarily locate that desire inside progressivism because you're right, it isn't. All that is is simply that innate need to be fully who you are, who you were meant to be, how you're gifted. And I don't believe for a second that we've only become progressively minded as women in modern history. Of course, that's not true. There are always the Annas. Right. I mean, you know, people would say, yeah, but there are no records of it. I said, well, I wonder why that was. Sure. You know? Yeah. Well, they weren't recorded. Women were invisible and their stories yeah. weren't visible and lost and just not valued enough to record. So 
we know women and we know that they have always longed for these things because mm. it is not just about being progressive. Progressive is a word we can project a lot of things on. Sure. Just like feminism. Yeah, sure. So you take a label and you put it on somebody and then you project everything on it, all the biases and the political ideas and, you know, your own ideas about it. And then it becomes a thing and totally. then you have to extract it. And then you start saying things like, oh, I'm not feminist, but I believe in women's rights. Totally. This is how I say I'm not an evangelical, but I believe in Jesus. That's right. Similar. So do this because yes. evangelical, progressive, right. feminism, they get labeled and they get, we project a million things on them. You're right. So heavy, we don't want to carry them. And when people would say that to me about feminism, I would say, well, yeah, I'm a feminist, but I'm reclaiming the word. It doesn't mean what you say it is. Yeah. I'm reclaiming it. Mm. And now it's said so much more freely than it was yeah. 10, 15 years ago. I want you to know that you are not alone in your pain. There are so many of us out here, so many. I'd venture to say most of us are fighting invisible or even impossible battles. And sometimes we can't or don't want to talk about it, but we need to. We need to speak it. We need to say it out loud, to work through it, to hand it over. That's where professional therapy like BetterHelp can come in and be such a beautiful thing. BetterHelp offers the ability to connect in a safe, private environment, and it's so convenient. You can start communicating in under 24 hours, you guys. And you can send a message to your counselor anytime. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. And their licensed professional counselors have a broad range of expertise, specializing in everything from depression to stress and anxiety to relationships, trauma, anger, family conflict, LGBTQ issues, grief, self-esteem, you name it. So reach out, say the thing out loud, lay it down, and hand it over. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash for the love. Join over a million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash for the love. One interesting choice that you made that I've thought a lot about is that you set Anna inside a wealthy, privileged family. And it's an interesting choice because I can see how it, when you're sort of imagining a narrative around the wife of Jesus, it might've been a more natural reach to partner him with a really a person of humble means, a woman of humble means, more like a neighbor, more like a woman who didn't have a lot of fancy accoutrements. And yet you gave Anna a lot of privilege, which could seem a little bit like a personality clash with somebody like Jesus. I'm just curious about that choice. What made you set her in a wealthy family? Well, I loved the idea of the differentiation of that. I mean, there's something about a story where you have two people who come from two different worlds in a way, although they were in one world of Judaism and one world of sure. culture and so forth, but they were from different worlds as far as socioeconomic class. Mm -hmm. And there was really a class system then. Mm -hmm. 
very, very strict, rigid class system. And I thought that would make, I mean, a personality clash would be interesting, you know? It is. And how do they work that out? But mostly it was because I really, it was a plot device in a way because I needed Anna to be able to read, write, be educated, and to have certain advantages and opportunities that maybe someone who was in a peasant village didn't have because I wanted her to have to be of the same magnitude as Jesus. Mm. I mean, she's going to be a partner to Jesus. So how do we envision a woman who can meet him head on? That's great. Stand her ground, be her own person and let him learn from her just as she learns from him. Mm. What kind of interaction well, she's got to have some kind of background that will give her a sense of herself. I don't think it had to do with the wealth. I don't think no. wealth had right. much to do with it, but I do think the education that gave her the possibility of being educated. That's a great point. And then, of course, we would have also lost this really interesting plot point of what it was like for her to live in his home. And just oh, the, yeah. the wild differences that she encountered, just lifestyle differences. That yeah, made that was really interesting. Write. Yeah. I, I loved writing that because there's nothing more fun than a fish out of water. Totally. To write, you know. And so here's poor Anna, who's never yeah. done a chore in her life, yeah. trying to light fires and make goat cheese. And yeah. she's not getting anywhere with it. And she's got a lot of backlash going on, too, from one of her, from her sister-in-law. That's right. So, Yeah, I think it gives a kind of conflict and texture to the story to have that disparity between them. And, you know, Anna's always wondering, oh, I I wish I hadn't said that because Mm -hmm. he'll think this. Mm -hmm. And so it it gave an interesting tension in their relationship, which was important. Yeah, it did. I actually love their two personalities together. And I appreciate you saying Anna had to be able to match wits. And so, and she could and did. And we have a a question in our community too about, you know, of course we love her longings. We love her prayers. I'll get to that in a minute, but could you have a inspiration? Did you read somewhere in your research about the incantation bowl? I'm curious where that specific physical device came in. I stumbled upon it. It was one of the great serendipitous moments in the research, which seemed to go on for about 25 years. That research, it was so intense and long and in depth. And I got stuck in it in a way where Mm -hmm. somebody had to do an intervention and get me out of the research. Yeah. But yeah, that was quite a moment because I wanted to start the book. I always like to start my novel with a moment of a core image that will move through the book if possible, something that will hold my character's deepest longing. And not just to know it abstractly, I want the reader to see it, feel it, to see it metaphorically and symbolically. And Anna needed it too. So I couldn't figure that out. And then one day I was, you know, down a rabbit hole on the internet and there they popped up. There were these ancient first century and even earlier incantation bowls. Mm -hmm. And they write these prayers in these spiraling ways in the inside of the bowl. And I'm looking at these two and 2,500 year old bowls, you know, and down at the bottom of them, there would have an image. Sometimes it was of Lilith. Often it was of Lilith. Mm -hmm. Sometimes those were not prayers. They were curses. 
Well, you listen, yeah. it's a, it's a utilitarian bowl. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, served lots of purposes, for yes. but they believed in the animating life of words and mm. language. And so they would spin those bowls and cant those prayers. And I just love the idea of it. And I knew immediately, oh, Anna's getting one of those. It was such a perfect like physical device to carry the story along. And yeah, we all envisioned it. So mission accomplished on that. I'd like to talk a little bit about Jesus as a character in your story. And we know your, your personal history with faith and all of the things, all of that. And so I'm curious if it was hard or if it was easy to reimagine his life as, as part of a story that had a lot more color to it, a lot more background, a lot more details. I mean, obviously rooted in history, but still fictitious, sort of an imagination. If you were like a slow warm to Jesus as you began to write him, or if, if the Jesus that you wrote in the book came pretty naturally. I'm going to say yes to everything you said, mm. because it's both. It's an ambiguous kind of thing that was going on in me the trepidation about what I was doing, the certainty about what I was doing was in there at the same time. I mean, I felt so compelled to do this, but I knew I was stepping into a controversial area. Totally. And there were moments when I was putting words in Jesus' mouth when he's 19 and 20 yeah. years old. And I'm thinking, holy cow, what am yeah. I doing? You know, yeah, it's weighty. It's pretty, pretty out there, pretty yeah. audacious for me. And yet it's my experience of him that I hmm. wrote about so much, you know, and I mean, Jesus, I'm not evangelical, but I love him too. Right. And, you know, I think I had, I think I found him in a new way. It was like hmm. meeting him again for the first time when I, I was writing this book. There's a little story when I was in Greece. Oh, many years ago, I was writing about this in the book, Traveling with Pomegranates. I wrote with my daughter. Mm -hmm. I was in the narthex of the cathedral in Athens, the Greek Orthodox cathedral. And I saw this woman come in and she bent down. She was a young woman. She bent down to this icon of Jesus and she kissed it. And she left this big red lipstick imprint on across the glass on the icon. And I watched this mm. and I kind of felt nostalgic in a way because I had sort of left behind a lot of this. Mm. God was yeah. more abstract. God was beyond mm. God. You know, it was mm -hmm. kind of a, a different experience for me at the time. So I had, God was not male or female. God just was, you yeah. know, kind of abstraction, but I saw this mm. And something kind of rose up in me, kind of longing for something. And I began to understand it had to do with needing an image, a person, a way to communicate with what is beyond communication almost, you know. We yeah. need icons. We need these portals, these images. We have to say he and she and when yeah. we refer to it. So when I wrote this book, I hadn't thought of that in many years. And when I finished the book, and I thought that was my kiss on the icon hmm. writing this book because it felt like that in many ways to me, even though the book was not about really meant to be about Jesus. It was not even his story, which was right. a shock for a lot of people. Yeah. He was a secondary character. He was. 
And yet he got a kiss on the icon for me for that. Mm. That was a, a, a return again for me. Oh, thanks for sharing that. I love that so much. <laughs> I want to talk about my favorite character, Yaltha. Can you talk a little bit more about, well, maybe if you have it, your specific inspiration for her. And then of course, her very precious connection to Anna. At one point, this is one of our favorite sentences that we have highlighted over and over in book club this month. You describe Yaltha by saying, her mind was an immense feral country that spilled its borders. She trespassed everywhere. It's not surprising to you that I identify with that. I love that sentence so much. It's comforting for a lot of us to imagine her pushing even then, even then. And so obviously, obviously your work has long centered on strong, competent, capable women. And so I'd like to hear you talk about your development of Yaltha and what you love about her. Yeah, we all need one of those Mm -hmm. characters in our lives, really. I think the inspiration for Yaltha was my three girlfriends. Hmm. Oh. My, 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 I call them my, my trinity of Yalthas. Nice. And we've been having girlfriend vacations for 20 something years. We meet once a year and we spend a week together. And here's the whole point. We bless one another's largeness. That's Mm -hmm. what we do. Yeah. And try to help one another bring forth their longings. And I think that was in my mind. I didn't have the same language for it. Girlfriend vacation. We didn't say we're blessing each other's largeness, but that's what we're doing. And when I was writing the book, I thought about that. I thought every woman needs a Yaltha. If she can't be her own Yaltha, even if she can, Mm -hmm. she needs a bunch of them out there. Yeah. And so they can come in many forms. So that was the inspiration for that. But you're right. I mean, even though Yaltha herself struggled, yeah, she, she'd been abused by her husband. Yeah. Um, her brother she was unwanted. Her brother yeah. used her, her yeah. child was taken from her. Yeah. And yet somehow she held on to this fierceness in herself and was not tamed by any of it. I mean, she mm-hmm. would trespass everywhere. Yes. I love that spirit. And I think I it's too. the spirit women need. And I just want, I just want women to be brave. Me too. She was brave and she evoked the braveness in Anna. She did. And Anna needed her. So, you know, I, I believe in the communities of women. I can't seem to write a novel without right. that. Yep. And they, tr- I think these communities, when they're authentic yeah. and they are full of mutual love and want one another's well-being, then it's transforming. I mean, Absolutely. we hear each other's stories and we help bring them into their voices. And so I want to write about that. I want to say, here's what's possible. Hmm. And Yaltas are possible in our lives. Oh, I could listen to you and talk about that forever. Too. I mean, we oh, don't yeah. just need to have them. We can be that for one right. another. And really it's both. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. I am one and I have them. So yes. I just love when you talk about this because I try to do in nonfiction what you do in fiction for and with women and in deep belief 
of women. And I can't think of life without a community of women. I, I, I have no imagination for it. I can't even envision it, but sometimes seeing it in a, in fiction, in characters, makes it just even more salient than hearing it just on the nose as instruction or encouragement. And so I always feel this way when I read your work, I feel so connected to it as just a reflection of so all the things that I believe about women and want for women and have experienced in the community of women. And so I just, I hope that you never get sick of women. I hope that we end up seeing a little circle of women in every book you ever write. That's what we love. We love that. It's not, it's not old. It's not tired. (laughs) I'm so interested right now in elevating and celebrating good things. So community, I'd like to introduce you to Abel. If you're not familiar with Abel, they are an ethical fashion brand that employs and empowers women as a solution to end poverty. (laughs) Love. They're deeply devoted also to quality, both in the products they make and in the quality of life they aim to provide. So they invest in, train, and educate women so they can earn a living, break the cycle of poverty, and thrive. And would you believe it all started with scarves for them? In Ethiopia, they met women coming out of the commercial sex industry who asked for help finding jobs. So they trained them to make scarves. And after selling over 4,000 of them in two months, they knew they were onto something. And now Abel has grown from hand-woven scarves to a whole lifestyle brand with leather bags and clothes, shoes, jewelry, and more. I have so much of their stuff that I wear on constant rotation. I cannot say enough good things about Able. Truly, come check them out for the cause and their incredible business practices and stay for the fashion. You can get 20% off site-wide with my code 20GIN at livefashionable.com. So that's 20GIN at livefashionable.com. ask you this because you use this language and of course you don't waste a word i'd like to talk about the idea of belonging to someone in comparison to belonging to oneself particularly where you couch it which is you know in the relationship between anna and jesus so i'd like to hear you discuss what it was like for you as the writer to build their relationship and what you were hoping, because I think you probably were hoping that readers would get something out of it or that we would draw something. Maybe you just left this to us, but I can't help but think you probably had some intention. Here's something to show, something to suggest, maybe just something to spark curiosity. I don't know, but I'd like to hear what you have to say about that. When I can see the idea to do this, took the deep breath and said, okay, I'm in. Yeah. One of the first things I thought was, I want these two to have a great love I want them to, in a way, emulate something about relationship of what is possible because there is a solitude of being that we all need in a relationship, that room and space, you know, to fulfill our own destiny. There's a line where Yalta tells Anna, Jesus has his destiny, but you have yours too. And now is the moment to take it up. I think. We have to find a way 
to both belong to one another and belong to ourselves. And that sounds mutually exclusive to a lot of people. And that was why I wanted to write about a relationship that the best I could portray of how that might come together. Hmm. I mean, there had to be conflict in this relationship. And there was some conflict sure. that had to do with him leaving and doing yes. his thing and her yes. fear of him going. And there was all kind of stuff going on. But mostly they were blessing each other's largeness. Yeah. And they actually say that to one another. And I thought, wow, what if in a relationship hmm. with our partner, we could say that to one another and really feel that, not think that because I want my largeness blessed or I have largeness, that means, I, oh, if you have it, I'm diminished. Or if That's right. I have it, you're diminished. But rather, we could both have this. Mm-hmm. And it's very, very hard, especially when you get motherhood and all these other things in there to to work out. And I guess this was my experiment or attempt to write a relationship mm. where that was going on, where they could have their solitude of beings, as I call it, or their independence, their autonomy, their ability to choose and be themselves. Mm. And at the same time, be devoted to each other. It's almost like you have to belong to yourself first in order to deeply and sincerely be able to belong to somebody else. Like that's the order. I agree with that. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a a scene in the novel where Anna gives birth to herself in a dream. She's pregnant. She gives birth. She lifts the baby up. Oh, the baby is a girl. Oh, the baby is myself. I have had so many women write to me or tell me they dreamed that long ago or at some point or just the other night or it seems to be kind of a a thing happening Hmm. in the collective unconscious maybe where women are dreaming of rebirthing themselves which is not surprising given the cultural moment you're right but that scene in the novel came straight out of the dance of the dissident daughter where i had that very same dream. And I think when we dream or whether we dream it or not, whether when we are birthing ourselves anew to belong to ourselves, to find a marriage to ourselves, that comes first. And then, because how can you belong to someone else if there's no equity in the relationship? Yeah. So I think that has to all be worked out carefully, you know, You're right. And I am just identify with that so much right now, just in my own personal rebirth. And, you know, if, and when, and before anybody new comes into this scenario, the work is here first and now. So I just, every word you're saying, I'm just cataloging right now to revisit. Thank you for saying that. I think one thing that was of course necessary, it had to be this way, obviously, but also hard was Anna's pain and even just the reality of being erased from Jesus's story by his people, by his closest people. I literally get why it had to be that way, but it was really painful to read. Can you talk about that literary choice, but even historical choice, really? Right. I, you know, I knew how this would end from the very beginning. Yeah. I mean, I could see the arc. I didn't know what was going to happen from the beginning to the end, but I knew what would be the end of it. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I saw her from the very beginning burying her writings on a hillside oh, um, and her life going underground. Now, I think if Jesus really did have a wife and let me go on record and say, I do not know whether you Jesus don't know. Yeah. I, don't know. I mean, from my research on this, there are reasons to think he may have and reasons to think he may not. It'd make yeah. a good argument pretty much either way. But let's not speculate. Let's say, just for the sake of saying it, that Jesus really did have a wife. Okay. Well, guess what? She's not here. (laughs) You know? Yeah. History erased her. Yeah. And that is poignant. Yeah. And painful, like you said. Mm -hmm. And that's how I wanted to leave the reader. I wanted the reader to feel the loss of women's stories Hmm. women's presence, women's value, their disempowerment. The stories are so important. Where are they? So I wanted, I wanted to leave the reader with that sense of recovering it. Well, what are we going to do about it? I'm going to tell my story. I'm going to put my story out there. It was hard for me to write that too, but I thought it was necessary to leave it it that way. Yeah. I wish it weren't as true as it was just the, even the, just erasure of all that women have contributed. And it really is a, a tragedy, but it did what you wanted it to, which was evoke a little bit of a, a holy fire in your readers. I've got a question actually from one of our book club members, her name is Colleen Wood. And she said, cause you can't help but read this book and take it personally. I mean, I can't help it. It brings questions to my own life story, which is great. I think that's great that you've made us ask these things. And so Colleen said, Sue, what suggestions do you have for us as women today to discover our own holy of holies, our deepest longings? And I like that question because still 2000 years later, our culture makes it hard to uncover this. Sometimes we have, we still have some same obstacles. Yeah. Well, we all have a largeness in us. I'm convinced of this. I I know this. Every person, women have often been told to embrace their smallness. I can't tell you how many times I was picked up growing up that it was better for me to be selfless. Oh, than to have a self. (laughs) Well, in fact, that was virtue. That was honor. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like, you know, we, we make a, the highest virtue in Christianity and some parts of Christianity that's is right. to be unsexed, to be a virgin, to be. That's selfish. right. Yeah, that's right. In some elements of Christianity, the highest value is to be selfless and women really were encouraged or told to embrace their smallness. So it, it's very hard to kind of, you know, change gears on that sometimes. But I think that we need to go to the bottom of our heart ask the question, Mm. what lies at the bottom of my heart? What do I long for? Mm. Your longing will tell you everything you need to know about this. What fascinates me? What does my creative spirit and my heart want? When I wake up in the morning, sometimes I ask myself, what does my heart want today? Hmm. And I try to follow that, you know, Mm. it's a practice to try to understand what lies at the bottom of our heart and to allow the question, ask the question, and then don't be afraid of the answer. Yeah. You know, 
sometimes it's overwhelming. And when I ask myself what lies at the bottom of my heart some years ago, it was, I want to write fiction. And this was 20 something years ago. Yeah. And it was terrifying. I didn't know if I could do it. You know, I think we have to acknowledge Mm. our largeness, our power, and not be afraid of it. I mean, men have historically feared women's power. That's right. But it is really curious that women also fear their own power. You're right. And so kind of acknowledge that, but then you may have to start taking baby steps, but to just make an intention and to take those steps toward living into and involving into that and being brave. Yeah. Just bravery, old fashioned bravery. That's it. Grit. Grit. Mm -hmm. That's right. It doesn't mean you're not afraid. It means, well, in the Thunder Perfect Mind, which turns up in the story, uh, which is a real document. Oh, yeah. Yeah, real document that was dug up in a clay jar on a hillside in Egypt. (sighs) Wow. In 1945 with the Nag Hammadi text. Wow. And in this was this incredible Thunder Perfect Mind. And I love this document. It's like an epic poem in a way. And I wanted Anna to write it. But there's a line in it. And it says, I think I repeated it two or three times in this story. I go forth in trembling boldness. It's perfect. That's it. Yeah. It's a kind of paradox. But I do things in trembling boldness all the time. Me too. And we have to kind of take our breath sometimes Hmm. and do that and not be afraid. And I'll just say one other thing. We were talking a moment ago about why this is important. And, you know, Anna is like the missing feminine in religion. There is a big gaping hole of women's, not just their stories, Hmm but their value, their presence, their contributions, and the imagery of the divine, sacred divine imagery, sacred language that is feminine. All of that is missing. The repercussions, I could go on. I mean, I wrote a whole book about it a long time about the devastating repercussions of this culturally, not just within religion, but way out there. And I just feel like that's important to understand. That's why Anna is important symbolically in my life. Mm. And I think we need her. Yeah. We need her in our psyche. The, the human psyche needs this balance. That's right. So that makes me brave, you see. Mm. Yeah. Anna says at some point in the story, Jen, she says, the grief made me sure, the anger made me brave. Uh, I felt that writing the good. story. She mm-hmm. had to tell Tabitha's story for those reasons. Mm. And I have to tell that story. And women need to tell their stories for right. those reasons and to become little thunders, you know, like Anna, that roar that's, that's right. in us needs to come out. Mm. But the largeness, I like, I like her question. And I think it's a, a pertinent question for where we are. Because women's contributions to this world have been so lacking. That's right. It is no longer an indispensable ethic. I mean, it is, we have to have it. It is indispensable. And if we're going to heal this world, we need women 
to bring forth their largeness and to live out loud and put it out there Mm. and find the thing at the bottom of their heart. And I call that our particular genius and everyone has a particular genius Mm. and it wants to come forth and we just have to be brave and do it because the world needs it and we need it. There, okay, I'm off my soapbox. Oh no, I love that soapbox. You are on my favorite soapbox. Okay. And it feels exciting to me because, well, I mean, just if you're just going to go throughout the history of time as a linear progression, knowing that it's going to become ever more, even still, we are at the furthest point of history at this moment, and we get to be a part of this generation of women in leadership who get to bang this drum and we have the means and we have the microphone and we have the listeners and is it where it should be a hundred percent is it i thrill to think about what this is going to be like in a hundred years but for us we're as far as we've been And it is so exciting to get to carry this message, not on the fringes or on the margins of the center point of our cultures anymore, but much closer to the bullseye and to raise this next generation in a different way. And I'll tell you, I mean, you and I have talked about being moms before. I think your daughter's about my age, right? I'm 46. She's 46. Okay. You're the same same. Yeah. So my daughter, my oldest daughter's 20, she'll be 21 next week. And I see such a different energy in her generation than even in mine. It's thrilling to watch. They are listening. This is happening. This message, this truth, this brand of, of leadership and courage, it's just happening. And so it's a real thrill. And I'm so proud of your work to have carried such a torch through the mechanism of fiction. Well, and of course, memoir as well naturally, but to be such a powerful contributing voice to largeness in women. It's just, I can't imagine how that feels in your bones, but I hope you feel the gravity of it in a good way that these little seeds that you have planted for all these years are just flourishing and they are growing and they're taking root and the next generation's growing up different. So, so wonderful. It's, that was, there's my soapbox. Well, thank you? you for that. Great stories are powerful, right? That's why I love this podcast. We get to hear people from all walks of life talking about their obstacles and their wins. And you know another place we get to do that? The Jen Hatmaker Book Club. And I want you to join today because if you love this podcast, you're going to love the book club. Here's the deal. Each month, we'll dive into a fantastic book. And we read all kinds of stuff, fiction, memoirs, self-help, all of it. Every single book is something I have read and loved. And I just know you will too. After you sign up every month, I'll send you a box with the book and other fun treats. Plus your membership comes with a whole slew of perks. You get resources like reading plans, weekly summaries, discussion questions. Plus you get tons of exclusive community stuff. You get access to our private Facebook group where you can connect with me and all your fellow members. And there's a monthly Facebook live chat session with me and sometimes some surprise guests. Sometimes I pop into the Zoom meetings of our local chapters, which is always delightful. 
Plus, we do some cool stuff with the book's author. They curate these awesome Spotify playlists just for us. Plus, I record a podcast with the author or another special guest, and we talk about the book. It is an incredible way to cap it all off. And you know what makes a book club great? The people. This community is the kindest, most supportive group you can possibly imagine. So sign up today at jenhatmakerbookclub.com. We are here waiting to welcome you into the sisterhood with open arms. So join us at jenhatmakerbookclub.com today. Okay, back to our show. I, okay, I've got another, a couple of questions before I let you go from the book club members still. Here's a good one. And with this one, there was a repeat of some version of this question a bunch. So this particular one is from Amy Lawson. And I'm going to read a follow-up question by Melissa Hughes. She said, is this a literary, uh, an author's choice question? Why did you decide to have Anna leave before Jesus's resurrection? And Melissa had a follow-up question. She said, my related question is, even if Anna never returned to the place of Jesus's crucifixion, why did you choose not to include her learning of the resurrection later and her reaction? Would Mary or Martha or Mary and Salome have written to Anna to share the good news? I'm curious how these women might've interpreted the situation. Yeah, that's a long answer. First of all, as I said before, this is Anna's story. And when it got to that moment where Jesus had to go on his ministry and she is at this turning point, I was very clear that she would not go along with him and be a witness to his largeness, rather she would go in pursuit of her own. You know, this is the thing about the, the novel that I think was a jolt for some people is when you say, oh, this is a book about the wife of Jesus, Hmm. I would say this is a book about Anna. Jesus was her husband. That's how I would have phrased it. That's good. I could have done it. Yeah, that's good. And I had to be clear that Anna would not live in his shadow. This is why I wanted her to have the magnitude to meet him where he was Hmm. on an equal footing if possible. Hmm. And I wanted them to learn from each other and to have that kind of relationship. But I knew Anna would resolve. She had her own quest, her own pursuits. She had to find a resolution for her longings and actualize her life. Mm. Now, is she going to travel around Galilee and be a witness to Jesus doing this? Or am I going to present a story where a woman finds her own largeness? Well, there was no question in my mind. People are not used to not, you know, this is not Jesus' story. Who writes about Jesus and it's not about Jesus? No one. No, no, it's not done. Yep. <laughs> so I think it's a little bit of a jolt sometimes because you you have an expectation right. to be about that. You're right. But I knew that this had to go the other way with her. That's and a then, great answer. And, yeah. and what was the other part of this question? <laughs> I think the curiosity was how would the women have interpreted his resurrection? And we'll oh, just leave about, that to our imagination. About the resurrection. Well, let me say this. I had to make a choice of whether I was going to write about the pre-Easter Jesus or the post-Easter mm. Jesus. I wanted as a novelist, what interested me was his humanity. And I feel like personally that we have so lost touch with his humanity. It has been eclipsed by our emphasis on his divinity that we we forget he was a human being who laughed and 
took walks and, you know, whatever. There's a whole world of his humanity outside of those scriptures that had to happen. That's right. And so I wanted to bring that to life. I wanted mm-hmm. us to th- re- rediscover him as fully human. So I made a decision mm-hmm. not to write about his miracles or yeah. the resurrection, or I just wanted us to be thrown into his humanity yeah. and to feel what that's like and rediscover it. Oh, that's great. Oh yeah. That answered a slew of other questions too. Thank you. Here's a question from Lauren Guntars. She said the weaving together of Jewish Christian and Egyptian beliefs and myths was so interesting. Was this part of staying true to the historical times or was it purposeful to draw on something specific? For example, you also told, told Anna about the story of Isis and Osiris. Then throughout the book, I felt a connection made between their story and Anna and Jesus's story, separation, longing, love, even death at the hands of someone close to them. Also, Anna and Isis shared so many characteristics. It felt beautifully intertwined. And I wondered if it was purposeful or just the fact that great myths and tales overlap often and inspiration can bleed over without even trying. What a question. Yeah. Well, that's what I think what she said at the end is certainly true throughout what she's kind of answered her own question in a way. Hmm. But, you know, there's a, a moment at the end of the book where Anna and Yaltha and Anna's little tribe of women that she's been collecting, you know, throughout Tabitha and Diodora, they all end up in in this place, the Therapeutae. And the head of it is a woman named Skepsis, who says to Diodora, who's a priestess, Mm -hmm. who's an attendant to a priestess of Isis in Egypt. So she knows nothing about the Jewish God. Right. And she says, I want you to join us. And Diodora says, but I don't know anything about the Jewish God. I serve Isis. Mm. And Skepsis says, you teach us about your God and we'll teach you about ours. And then we'll find the God behind God. Mm-hmm. There you go. That's why I yeah. think that's the best way I can say it is that we need to find our commonness, our common heart, Mm. our common story, there is one in there. And then find the God behind God. Mm. If that makes any sense. (laughs) It makes so much sense. By the way, I love that portion of the book, the therapeutic, that I don't know if that was born out of some research or if you invented it, but it, it was a real thing. Yeah. Oh, I love that part. That was special. And again, you pulled that from the erasure of the of the animal, you know, we, ne- we would have never known about that, never heard about that. And you pulled that back into like modern thought, modern knowledge. And I loved it. One more question from readers and then we'll wrap it up. This is from Heather Nay. And I think I know a little bit about this answer because she told me last month. Sue, do you expect to write another memoir? I loved Dance of the Dissident Daughter and would love to hear more about your journey since then. Has anything in your faith evolved more? And if so, what and how? Oh, of course, things have sure. more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, none of us should be standing still. That's right. Know? We should be evolving all the time, in so many ways. But part two of the dance of the of the dissident daughter was my book I wrote with my daughter called "Traveling with Pomegranates." Yeah, and it took from that moment up to a certain place of kind of how things were evolving for me. 
And yes, there's a whole story after that. And yes, I will write about it. And in fact, the next book that I write is going to be not real. It's kind of a memoirish book. Yeah. It's nonfiction. Yeah. And I'm co-authoring it with my daughter, Anne yeah. Taylor. And it's called Writing, Creativity, and Soul. Yeah. And I'm writing about the intersection of our, how we write and create and how soul is imbued in that. Where is that place in us that can integrate those three things? So it's mm. kind of the story of my own writing life, but yeah. with a lot of toolbox stuff, you know, how to totally. kind of my way of doing it. So oh. that was fun to write. And yeah, there will be another memoir about my own process. Yeah. Good, good. Put those fingers on that laptop and get going. I'm going to read every word of it. I can't wait for the writing book too. I'll read it cover to cover like a Bible. So I'm thrilled that you're writing that. You have a lot to teach us about the craft and the process, which is its own category, you know, outside of the actual stories. And so I can't wait to learn from you in that way. All right. Last thing, because I always just want to know, because you always have such good answers. I know that, you know, writers read too. What, what are you reading lately? What do you like? What have you loved? Did you, did you read something during the pandemic that was resonant or a, just a great suggestion that you would have for us? Cause we're a community of readers too. Oh, there were so many good books. Oh gosh. Well, I'll tell you what I'm reading now. I'm reading a book about five women writers that changed mm. the world. That's the, that's the subtitle. It's the title is outsiders. Mm. It's, it's a beautiful book about the bravery of women writers, Wow! how hard it was for them, because these are not necessarily contemporary. We're talking about Emily Bronte, oh, Emily sure, sure. Dickinson, yeah. Virginia Woolf, Olive Schreiner, yeah. and Mary Shelley. Great. And what they had to do mm. to just fulfill their lives to write, you know, the prayer in Anna's bowl, somebody asked me, what would you put inside your bowl? I said, I, what I put in Anna's <laughs> That's totally. what would go in my bowl. Yep. And I love that women are creating their own incantation bowls and they're sending me pictures of are them they? with their prayers inside of them. And that's the hmm. prayer of prayers, you yeah. know, for them. And for me, it is when I am dust, sing these words over my bones. She was a voice. Ugh. That's true of these women I was just talking about that I'm reading about. Mm. And I don't know, it makes me all the more determined. Thank you. Thank you for your work in the world and for your diligence to bring these stories to life. They, they mean so much to us, not just as readers, but as women. And they're just this, they're the, they're a part of this body of work, leading us forward and leading us higher, making us braver lending us language when we're not quite sure what the words are to the own long the longings in our own heart. And so that's just such meaningful work. And we're so grateful for you. So thank you. Thank you for your time today. I need to thank you. It's all about being grateful to you, Jen, for the opportunity and just to be able to talk about it. And you've been my Yalta today. So thank mm. you. Oh, what a nice compliment. Okay. Well, we're here. I mean, you have a huge community of devoted fans in the Gin Hatmaker Book Club. So whatever you put out into the world next, we will buy it. We will read it and we will love it. Well, I love every one of you. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Sue.